0: Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Greetings our listeners. My name is Rogers Atwebembeide, the director of the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. We've been dealing with a series entitled, What Did Jesus Really Mean? Now you may be there wondering, is that really an important or urgent topic worth talking about? Well, if you have heard what has been said about Jesus in different theological or denominational circles, you probably already know that this is as important as the oxygen that you breathe that Jesus is not only known as God, but one of the greatest teachers that ever lived, a man who lived in the power of the Spirit, a man who proclaimed the gospel with authority and power and great wisdom, a man who before whom the leaders of the day trembled and agreed that indeed no man ever was wise like him. Nonetheless, you will notice that there are a number of things Jesus said in his teachings that are so disturbing to people who are not conversant with Bible interpretation. That there are many things that Jesus said that sound controversial on the outlook, although really they actually don't, but many people come to them and they wonder, what did Jesus really mean here? And in the midst of this confusion, many people, whether intentionally or not, have misunderstood the statements of Jesus, misused them, misapplied them, and led many into error, deception, and eventually destruction. No wonder we have so many cults and false teachers today. These groups are not branded cults just because they say we hate Jesus it is mostly because they distort who jesus is and what he taught. so what did jesus really mean by what he said it's easy to know what he said because it is written in scripture you can just read it but how do we know what he meant by that which he said as we find it in scriptures today we have a bible passage we wish to look at and look at where the controversy is and hopefully look at the rest of the Bible passages to try to interpret, understand, and apply what Jesus really did mean to avoid the controversies that usually come around this passage. This passage is what you find in Mark chapter 2. You may read from verses 13. It is a passage where Jesus calls Levi, or one who was called Matthew by another name, and he ate at his house. Now listen to what the word of the Lord says. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners, boom, there it is. Now people have read through this passage, and especially as you look at the last verse, which is verses 17, they take the statement of Jesus, and they conclude that Jesus was meaning that some people can be righteous enough that they do not need a Savior. So the question we are dealing with here is did jesus really teach that there are some people righteous enough that they do not need a savior when jesus said i have not come to call the righteous but sinners is he saying that before he came there were some people who were righteous and there were other people who are not righteous in other words is he saying that they are sinners who need Jesus, but they are righteous people who are okay and therefore cannot do not need to go through Jesus in order to be saved. And of course in that one question there are several other questions that spring up right away. For instance, are there people who do not sin? Are there people who do not need a savior? When he says he has not come to call the righteous, what does he mean? And what are these righteous people that he is actually talking about? It will help us to know uh, what Jesus meant by looking at the broader context of this passage. Certainly by the word righteous, Jesus was not referring that there were some people who were actually righteous in God's sight. But what Jesus is actually saying is that there are people who are righteous in their own eyes, in their own esteem. People who have measured themselves by the standards of the world have decided that they are good enough to deserve to be in heaven and therefore do not need the intervention of anyone, even from Jesus. And in our passage we see that category of people, the scribes and the Pharisees, who are watching him from a distance like a hawk, who have divided people and have decided there are those who are okay, there are those who are not okay. And for instance, in their estimation, prostitutes and tax collectors are not worthy of any good thing, and therefore good people were not supposed to associate with them. You can tell their self-righteous attitude by looking at how they respond to Jesus' fellowship with these new believers who were formerly tax collectors and prostitutes. They marvel and they wonder and they say, How can he eat with sinners and tax collectors? How can he? They have already decided who is worthy and who is not. Who is deserving of God and who is not in their estimation they are better than the tax collectors they are better than the prostitutes so they have decided that they are righteous and jesus is saying that the people who claim that kind of self-righteousness are at a place where they are beyond help because they don't believe they need help anyway and jesus the kind who came to minister to people who humbly acknowledge their sinfulness, the people who desperately cry out for a savior, this Jesus says, I have come for the sinners, the open-hearted, the receptive ones, those who believe they need help, not those who have decided that they are already good enough. Jesus makes it clear that his ministry is not to the self-righteous, and if at all he must do ministry among them, it is to announce their condemnation before God. And that's why he could tell the religious leaders of the day that you teachers of the law, you diligently search the scriptures, but you do not believe or follow what the scriptures point to, which is me. You search the scriptures to find life in them, yet you continue to ignore me, who is the life that those scriptures actually talk about. In another place he had rebuked them, and he had said, you Pharisees and teachers of the law, You have the keys of the kingdom, you yourselves have not entered into the kingdom, and you are not willing to let those who want to enter from entering. You despise them, you disregard them, you think you are better than them, even when they need to access the door and find the help they need, you do not allow them in. You are self-righteous, in your own eyes you are good, but by God's righteous standard you are certainly not. And we can tell that by the way Jesus deals with them so harshly. When he confronts them in the Gospel of Matthew and he rains down the seven wars. Woe unto you, Pharisees! Woe unto you, Pharisees! Men who were righteous before the eyes of Israel. Men who according to the Jewish customs and Old Testament regulations looked perfect. Yet in the eyes of God they were not. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs that look so smart and nice on the outside, but inwardly are actually bones and skeletons. Jesus calls them people who wash the outside of the cup when inside there is a lot of rottenness. And he says, Woe unto you, woe unto you. If there is any ministry Jesus must do among them or for them, it is to announce their condemnation is to announce the folly of uh, self-righteousness and to remind them that unless they confess themselves as sinners who they really are they will not find the savior what a dichotomy that we see here the sinners who trusted in jesus and followed him in faith are made righteous as a result of christ's work on the cross By contrast, those who call themselves self-righteous like the Pharisees, blindly sink deeper into sin and are ever more condemned by God. Do you remember this story of the Pharisees and the tax collector? The story is found in Luke chapter 18 from verses 9 to 14. These two men go into the temple to pray, and the Pharisee begins his prayer. The Pharisee is very proud and arrogant and pompous in the way he prays. He reminds God of how special he is unlike all other sinners around him. He tells God the things he's doing, he's fasting, he's tithing, he's praying, and clearly he's a doing man, and he thinks that by the works of his hands he can convince God to make him right before him. So he not only talks about his CV and about his hard and self-righteousness, but he even compares himself with the poor tax collector who was praying not far from him. But on the other hand, we have this tax collector guy. The guy comes before the Lord and he even looks down. He does not even have the courage to look up. He beats his chest and says, Woe unto me. I am a sinner, dear Lord, would you please have mercy on me? And Jesus asks a rhetorical question, that at the end of these prayers, whose prayer was actually accepted? Who went away blessed more than the other? And the answer is obvious, that the poor sinner of a tax collector, who was broken enough to admit his sin, and surrender is to the only merciful God who could save him, walked out of the temple that day truly and fully forgiven. The self righteous Pharisee, whose CV speaks well about him, but in comparison to others and his works not really to the righteous standard of God, he walks away thinking his prayer has been answered, but actually he is the loser of all. And what is the object lesson that we find in this passage? That Jesus has come for the meek, for the humble. No wonder in the Beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew, he says that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That humility is key in receiving salvation. Understanding that you are a miserable sinner who deserves nothing and yet desperately crying out to be given something and being given much more than you asked for is what salvation is all about. An act of extravagant grace, grace beyond compare, grace greater than all our sins, grace beyond what we would ever ask for grace that we are all sure we do not deserve never did and we will never merit so when jesus talks in this passage and he says i have not come for the righteous but for the sinners he is basically saying i have not come for the self-righteous I have not come for men who think they have already arrived. Those who hide themselves in their accomplishments, in their rigid, strict observance of the laws of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that if a man thinks he's okay, he will not even go to the doctor for treatment. So the doctor can only deal with the sick, because those who know themselves to be sick are the ones who will be willing to be treated anyway. If a doctor just walked in a room where you were and he came to you and he said, young man or young lady, you are sick and now I am going to give you injections, you are going to be getting two injections three times a day. What would be your immediate reaction to this man? You would think he's very crazy, right? Who would want to be subjected to such pain of injections for a sickness that he's not convinced that he has? You see, the reason we go to the hospital cooperate with doctors, go through all those lab tests, endure the pain, sometimes even the embarrassment of undressing before doctors. The reason we go through all that is because we are already convinced that we are sick. The doctor's work is to confirm it through the laboratory tests and any other ways. And once he has confirmed that we are sick, he agrees with us and we agree with him that we need a remedy only then does he suggest the injections you do not take the injections because they are sweet you do not take those injections because they are not painful In fact, quite often they are very painful, very inconveniencing, and again very embarrassing because they involve one getting undressed. The reason you take them is because you know that while they are painful, they will actually in the long run take away the more painful sickness that has overtaken you. So you are willing to endure a little pain to relieve yourself of the much greater long-lasting pain that the sickness has caused in you the same thing works in salvation the reason we are willing to come before the world and confess that we are sinners and talk about our sins and talk about the shameful life we lived in the past it is not because we enjoy it It is because when we do that, what we are receiving is much, much more than what we are giving away. It takes brokenness for somebody to believe that he's a sinner. It takes humility for somebody to say, I need somebody else's help. And that is why humility is key. That's why Jesus says, I have come for the sick and not those who are well. I have come for those who admit that there is a problem and are willing to have me deal with their problem, even when it might mean some inconveniences, some discomfort, some pain. That's what Jesus is talking about. The Pharisees claim they have arrived. They think by the observance of the law, they have done all they need to do to be right before God. As you can imagine, men like this do not need anything more. No wonder they don't think they need Jesus no wonder they don't think that jesus is good enough for them no wonder they don't think they can relate with anyone else because they see themselves as different and above anyone else and because of that self-righteousness they draw the conclusion that if jesus was in their category he would not associate with the poor and the dirty and the weak and the wicked So the conclusion, in other words, is that since Jesus mingles with these kinds of people and these categories, he cannot be as righteous as they are. They are better than him and therefore don't need him. So you can see why Jesus is saying, as long as you are still climbing on that high horse of self-righteousness, As long as you are still climbing the tree like Zacchaeus and you think that it is your effort in climbing the tree that will help you meet Jesus, you will never see him. You understand why Jesus comes to the sycamore tree now and says, Zacchaeus, come down. Your efforts cannot help you. I've already come on my own will. I am willing to serve you. In fact, I will have lunch in your house. So come, let's go dine together. Don't be contented with seeing me from a distance. Open your home. Open your heart. Let me come in. Let me dine with you. Have me to the fullest extent that you need. This is what Jesus is talking about. But somebody comes up, looks at a verse like this, pulls it out of its immediate context, makes it to say what it has not said and concludes that Jesus is saying that there is a special category of people who do not need to be saved, who are already righteous and therefore they make it look like salvation can be offered in two different ways. There are those who need Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord and there are those who don't. And in fact, if you look at it very carefully, every religion that does not believe in Jesus or submit in Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, essentially they are saying that they have their own righteousness that is attained or achieved in another way apart from Jesus. They are basically saying that it is possible for one to be righteous without Jesus. They are basically saying that they have found another way in which they can be pleasing to God without going through Jesus. All they are saying that their religion offers better than what Jesus has accomplished in his life and in his death and resurrection. And therefore, essentially, they are saying, we do not need Jesus to be righteous. Because guess what? We already are in our own way, in our own means, through our own efforts. So Jesus, you are irrelevant to us. Essentially, that's what they are saying. Do you see what happens when you misunderstand scripture? Do you see the dangers of misrepresenting what scripture has said? Now, if that is that really serious, how much more dangerous do you think it is when you misrepresent what Jesus has said and what Jesus meant? How do you think your judgment will look like when you get the words of Jesus and make them to say what they were never meant to say, and you mislead innocent followers that hopefully think you are teaching them the truth, when actually you have intentionally diverted them from the path that you know to be true? There are so many false teachers today, false pastors, false apostles, false prophets, Who come claiming that God has given them revelations about what is true and what is not? Who claim that they are the only ones who can lead God's people into a place of righteousness and a place of eternal fellowship with God? But they approach the Bible selectively and uh, biasedly. They pick the words of Jesus more particularly and misinterpret them and misapply them. And usually the result of their teachings or doctrines is not what Jesus really said, or is not what Jesus really meant. It is now a product of their imagination, a product of their biased, wrong theology, And eventually what their members apply into their lives is not really the word of God, but the commentary of their pastor on the word of God, which in most cases is twisted and distorted. How I pray that you will find God's truth, because that's the only way to be truly free. How I pray that you would be discerning, that you would not prey to the schemes of Satan, to the schemes of deceptive teaching, that you would approach the Bible truthfully and faithfully, that you would approach the Bible in its entire context, that you would seek to find the meaning of Jesus' words rather than just generally take them to mean whatever you have decided it is. My prayer is that God will keep you, that God will watch you from the evil one, that you will stand firm in these trying, confusing, deceptive days, that you will stand firm in the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. May the Lord abundantly bless you. May the Lord fruitfully keep you, that you may become an effective ambassador of his kingdom before the watching world. Amen. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.